happened just to jump in a different direction at the last minute there. Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. We pause. There we go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the famous passage of scripture that we turn to when we come to talking about serving others. And serving others is part of our mission statement as a church. And as I say that, I think it's important for us to identify the difference between mission and vision. Vision is where the church is going. It's what we're working towards. Mission is what we do to get there. And last Sunday, we called out vision. We called out where we are going. We are building that which will communicate God to the now, to the next, and to the not yet generations. And the way that we do that and accomplish that is by seeking God, sharing faith, and serving others. The passage that we arrive in today is an important passage that speaks further into our church culture and shakes the actions that we take in beginning to build for the now, the next, and the not yet generations. And in order to fully understand this passage, we actually have to come to the end of the text because that's where we find the lens that we have to view the entire passage with. Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan and he does so in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And as he concludes his teaching, he poses a question back to the expert who first asked him the question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. These sentences contain the key that unlocks the entire passage. This is the lens by which we have to view this parable. This parable is actually all about mercy. Jesus finishes it, concludes it, and he says, here is the action. Here is what you have to do. Here is what you have to live in. Here is what you have to live out. This is all about mercy. And these verses contain a call direct from Jesus himself for us as believers to live in and to live out mercy. So we do a little bit of background work before we jump into the passage to understand fully what it is Jesus is talking about, to glean the most understanding from these verses, and we begin by defining mercy. And the word mercy in the Greek is the word eleos, in the Hebrew it's the word kesed, and it means compassion, loving kindness, tenderness. 
And immediately when we hear those words, compassion, loving kindness, tenderness, we, we immediately think of God. Because that's who God is. And that's what God is. He is full of compassion. He is full and overflowing with kindness. Kindness is expressed towards us and is rooted in love and is itself loving. He is tender, tender in his dealings with us because he is full of mercy. Our God is merciful. And Lamentations calls this out and it says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now the word love here is the Hebrew word keset, which means that actually this passage reads as because of the Lord's great mercy, we are not consumed because his compassions never fail. And in fact, lamentations tell us that the mercy and the compassion of God is new every single morning. And the word new here means fresh. God's mercy is fresh every morning. In other words, his mercy doesn't turn stale. His mercy isn't restricted to a particular time or a particular season. There isn't a shelf life on his favor. There isn't a time span attached to his mercy and compassion. His mercy is fresh for every moment and every experience that we face. He is constantly giving us fresh compassion. He constantly releases and demonstrates towards us fresh kindness. He constantly interacts in our lives with fresh tenderness and with a compassion that each day we can say we have never seen before because each day his compassion is brand new. It is fresh. Thank God that his mercy never runs out. Thank God that for every trial and every circumstance, every storm and every failure, every hurdle, every pit, every valley, every travailing experience, God has a whole fresh batch of mercy to empty onto us and to imply within our lives and our circumstances, which means time and time again, we're not consumed by his wrath as our actions so deserve, but instead we are bowled over with kindness every single time. So moved by this was the prophet Micah. So amazed by this, it inspired him to write, who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives transgression. You don't stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. According to Micah, God delights to show mercy. It is his absolute delight. It brings him delight to show mercy. He loves displays of mercy. In fact, to use a popular term today, displays of mercy is one of God's love languages. He displays and communicates his love towards us in tender acts of kindness, like forgiving our sins instead of punishing them. Like releasing us into his purpose and giving us a role to play within his plan for planet Earth. Like working in all of our situations towards that which is good for us. He's full of love. He is full of mercy. And he loves to display his mercy in our lives. Now Titus tells us very clearly and very strongly that we are children of God because of God's mercy. We're told when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we'd done, but because of his mercy. And this is important for us to understand God's mercy saved us. His mercy in action redeemed our souls. The God that is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. And as we embrace the mercy revealed to us in Christ Jesus, we then step into a relationship with a God whose mercies are new and fresh every morning. The God who is full and abounding in mercy towards us and the God who finds absolute delight and pleasure in showering our lives with demonstrations and displays of mercy. This is the relationship we're created for. And if you remember from Genesis, we have been made to reflect the image of this God. And in doing so, as we behold his glory, we're told that we are transformed more and more to become like him. In other words, we are to reflect the God that we behold. And that means that as we behold and experience the God who is mercy, we are called and mandated to reflect mercy to the world around us. Jesus taught us this when he said, 
be merciful just as your father is merciful. He says, reflect what you behold. You've experienced mercy, now reflect mercy. Live out what you have experienced. Reflect that kindness to the world around you. In fact, God tells us in Proverbs, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them round your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. The word love here is the Hebrew word kesed. Let mercy never leave you. Bind it to you. Write it in the very heart of who you are. Mercy is to be part of the DNA of the believer. We have to fasten onto it. We have to allow it to be outworked in the very heartbeat of our lives. It's to be the mission statement that dictates the way that we live and conduct ourselves in this world. Mercy is to be an intrinsic and integral part of who we are because we have received mercy so we are to display it to the world. And of course, a famous passage that calls this out is again in Micah, where he says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Micah tells us this pretty bluntly. He says, this isn't a request, this is a requirement. This is the job spec of everyone who calls themselves a believer and a child of the living God, it's to love mercy. Jesus picks this theme up and reinforces it in Luke chapter 10. The expert in the law asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Jesus says, this is the correct answer to the question. And as we read the answer and identify the correct answer, we can't lose sight of the question. And the question was, how do I inherit eternal life? And the answer is, love God and love others. Now that's quite profound. And I might upset a few folk when I say this, but it's profound that Jesus didn't answer by leading the man in the sinner's prayer. That's profound. And that has to communicate quite a lot to us, actually. Jesus presented that eternal life involved more than that. It lay beyond making a decision It's rooted in discipleship. It's not enough to say a prayer and lay claim to belief. Life, true and full life, life eternal at that, is rooted in actively loving God. Loving him with every fiber of our being, with our heart, with our soul, with our strength, with our mind, which means loving him with all of our emotions and affections, loving him with all of our spiritual being, loving him with all of our actions and our deeds, loving him with our thought processes and our thinking patterns. Clearly then, life is more than just making a decision. The life that God calls us to is found in the pursuit of discipleship, that act of actively engaging all that we have in the love of him and the pursuit of him. And we're told it's also found in the way that we reflect that to other people. The call of Christ is to love God and love others. True discipleship is outworked on two relationship planes. It is outworked through the relationship that we have with God, but is also outworked in the interaction that we have with others. It truly then is about seeking God and about sharing faith and serving others too. Scripture tells us faith without works is dead. And what that means is that faith that is not lived out is no faith at all. In other words, our actions towards others as an integral part of our faith and is an important component of true and genuine discipleship. We have received mercy. Our call is now to live mercy out because God loves, actually he delights in displays of mercy. So we're called to perform, to bring, to demonstrate displays of mercy. How do we do that? Well, quite helpfully, 
Jesus gives an illustrated talk to tell us how to do it, which is really handy. And here's the story he tells. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the story that Jesus tells is the story of a man without a name. We don't know anything about this guy. We don't know his name. In fact, the only thing we know is the route of his journey. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and as he journeys, he is attacked. In fact, the version of the Bible I'm reading from says he fell into the hands of robbers. Now, that's interesting terminology, isn't it? He fell into the hands of robbers. Newer versions of the Bible simply say he was attacked by robbers because that more reflects the way that we speak nowadays. But the terminology of falling into the hands of robbers is not without merit because it communicates the situation that the traveling man finds himself in. And the situation he finds himself in is not intentional. When someone falls, it's never intentional. It's never purposed. Normally when people fall, it's because they trip over something unseen. And here's the point. The attack that the man, find, the man finds himself on the receiving end of is not his fault. It's unprovoked. It's unforeseen. In fact, the Greek word used in this passage, it means surrounded. This guy's been ambushed. He's been ambushed by an assailant, by an unforeseen force and an unprovoked attack. And here's what happened to him. It says they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. This sentence lists the effects of the man's unprovoked attack. This man has been stripped of his dignity. He's left feeling vulnerable and exposed and ashamed. This man is wounded, he is hurting, he is sore, he is bruised. This man is helpless, he has been traumatized and immobilized. His journey has been halted by his experience. Now the point of Jesus telling us this story is to describe how we should love our neighbor and exactly who our neighbor is. He's outlining how mercy should be outworked in our lives. So we examine this and we draw the parallel and the parallel is this. Every day, People make the journey of life. And every day, people making the journey of life find themselves ambushed. Ambushed by the unforeseen, the unprovoked, and the unpredicted experiences of life. All of us face and endure moments in which we can feel ambushed by life. Moments that leave us and leave others feeling exposed, feeling vulnerable, feeling ashamed of what has taken place, feeling immobilized and helpless and traumatized by what we've been through. Moments that leave us at times with the conclusion that we just can't keep carrying on. Now it might not be that we have been physically mugged by robbers, but it might just be that the experiences of life have ambushed us and stolen from us, stolen our peace, stolen our trust. Stolen self-worth, stolen our pride, our courage, our freedom, our dignity, our wealth, our health, even our faith. So often things happen to us on the journey of life that are unprovoked and unforeseen and we deem it just to be part of the journey. It's just the hand that we've been dealt with. But actually these are moments that can at times leave us with a very real and lasting impact on us and on the journey that we make. They can leave us immobilized. And the good news is, that God's desire in such moments is to release mercy. He wants to meet us in the place of our wounding. He wants to pour his loving kindness into our lives and visit our circumstances with compassion. But here is the powerful truth about this parable. It's not actually meant to be about us. It's actually supposed to turn our focus from us to others. It's about how the mercy of God functions in this situation, how we can be the mercy of God in this situation, how we should live that out to others, how we should serve others as part of our discipleship journey. This passage shows how mercy visits and interacts those ambushed by life. So let's call out some things about mercy and we're just gonna drop in on them. You can pick them up in your connect groups and discuss them further. In this parable, three people pass by. And the first is a priest. It says, a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. And when he saw the man, sorry, he passed by on the other side. Now straight away when we read that, 
The word that jumps out is the word happened. A priest happened to be going down the same road. This man was wounded. He was immobilized. He was stuck in a position of great pain and torment. And it just so happens that someone else comes walking down that exact same road at exactly the right time. And the person walking down that road is a priest. He is a representative and a servant of God. Here's the thing. When you feel stuck and wounded and sore, don't fear. God will always send someone down your road to help. He will bring someone across your path at exactly the right moment. This man was left half dead. He didn't have the faculties. He didn't have the ability to call for help himself. He didn't have the ability to raise the kind of alarm that would elicit a response of help, but God did. God saw, God knew, and help came walking down that path. You know, even at the times in life when we can't muster up the strength and the courage to ask for help, even at the times when we don't feel physically able to request help, even at the times when our circumstances stop us, prohibit us, prevent us from raising up the alarm, fear not, there is a God that sees, there is a God that knows, he will send help. The challenge that comes is not to ignore to shut out or to hide from the people that God sends to us because we're waiting on God to help. You know that story of the man stuck on the roof in the flood and the helicopter and the boat comes by and he's like, no, no, I'm waiting on God to help. And he dies and he goes to heaven and he's like, God, where was the help? And he's like, I sent the helicopter and the boat. The action of God is seen in the people of God. And we do well to remember that. This parable could have been told with angels descending. It could have been told with supernatural manifestations. Suddenly the Holy Spirit swept down the path and instantaneous healing and strength enters the man's body and he rose up to his feet and carried on his way. But this story wasn't told with supernatural manifestations, Holy Spirit sweepings or angels descending. It was told with people. Because for reasons that we cannot and do not understand, God chooses to use people. He chooses to display his mercy, his activity, his function through the actions of his people. We must not shut out, ignore, or hide from the people that God sends to help because we're waiting on a supernatural act of God. Very often, the supernatural act of God is found in the very natural actions of his people. However, we've said the point of this parable is to turn the focus from ourselves to others. So actually the bigger challenge and the point that Jesus is really making here is that we have to be the people that God sends down the path to help. And our challenge then is to have our eyes open. To have our eyes open as we journey for those that need help on their journey. Now we can pray about it, of course we can, and that's always a good starting point. We can pray and we can press into God and we can seek God and we can fast and we can lay hold of God and say, God, who are those that you're sending me to minister to? Who are those that you want me to connect with or reach out to? We could pray about it or we could just open our eyes from praying and look round about. Who are those that God has placed on our path? Who are those that are right in front of us that have a need? Who are those that he's put in our line of vision? Maybe, just maybe, they're there because God wants us to minister to them. What if we took the mindset of see a need, meet a need? Certainly changed the way that we did church, wouldn't it? See a need, meet a need. What if we took the approach of God has let me see it because he wants me to serve it? He's put that need in my line of vision because he wants me to be his response to that need. Or more specifically, he's put that person in my line of vision because I have to be God's response to that person and to that person's need. We are the people that God sends down the road to be his help, which means every road that we walk down, we are the mercy of God in action. We need to take responsibility for the roads that we walk down. 
And by that, I don't mean literal streets and roads. I mean the environments, the circumstances around us, the environments that we're in. We need to recognize that we are positioned within such environments to be the mercy of God in action. And therefore, we need to open our eyes and see the need around us and respond with and respond as the mercy of God. Now, notice also that Jesus tells us that the priest, as he traveled, was traveling down the same road as the injured man. It's the same road. The priest is making the same journey that the injured man was making, which means had he been half an hour earlier, an hour earlier, a few hours earlier, it could actually be him lying there. That attack could have happened to him. What happened to this man could have happened to him, and in fact, it still could as he journeyed down that road. But the point is that the priest failed to identify with the man. And here's our first major point. Mercy identifies with others in their place of pain. This comes back to what we began with. The scripture that the expert in the law quotes is that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this involves two things. It involves us empathizing with others putting ourselves in other people's shoes, ministering and helping the way that we'd like to be ministered to or helped if we were in that situation. Sometimes actually what gets me is the thought process of ministering and helping the way that I hope someone would if my son or daughter was in that situation. We need to minister the way that we would expect ministry and help to arrive at us, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But it also involves us recognizing the mercy that God the Father has shown to us. He didn't ignore us. He didn't leave us for dead. He redeemed us and delivered us. The God that is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. Out of all the people that are in the world, the millions, the billions, the trillions, whatever the number is, out of all of those people, he saw us. And he stopped for us. And he showed his kindness so that that which we've experienced, we would then reflect to other people. Mercy identifies with others in their place of pain. As we walk down the roads of life, we've got to be ready to identify with other people. Of course, a second person comes walking along the road in this parable, a Levite. And it says in verse 32, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by, on the other side. Now the wording of this verse, when he came to the place, suggests that unlike the priest, the Levite stops. He stops when he came to that place as opposed to just carrying on as normal. But even though he stops, he doesn't help. He just wants to have a look. But he doesn't want to act. And in our culture today, we are a people that quite like to have a look, aren't we? There's a commotion, we stop for a look. There's a group of people crowding in a situation, we go for a look. There's an accident, we slow down on the drive past to get a good swatch. <laughs> Something goes on with somebody, we get on Facebook to have a look to see what's going on. We're a people that like to look. The Levite in this parable stops for a look, but he doesn't want to act. He wants to see what's going on, but he doesn't want to take responsibility for providing the solution. The Levite fails to engage with the man. And here's our next big point. Mercy engages with others in their place of pain. Mercy sees and acts. Mercy takes a look and then rolls up its sleeves to help. Mercy takes what it sees and begins to serve it with what it has. We need to be a people that not just see, but a people that are willing to act. We need to be a people that when we encounter those in need, we don't just look, have a swatch, and keep on going, but actually we stop, roll up our sleeves, and think, how can we serve with what we have in this situation? It's not just enough to identify with someone in need. It's also important that we engage with others in their place of pain. Of course, along the road comes the next character who is the hero of the story, the Samaritan. 
But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. The Samaritan, much like the priest and the Levite, comes traveling down the same road. The Samaritan, like the other two, is traveling down this road for a reason and traveling for a purpose. He has a destination in sight. He is journeying with intent. But despite all of that, unlike the other two, he stops. Mercy stops for the pain of one. And the mercy that stops for one is a mercy that embodies Jesus Christ because he was always willing to stop for one. The blind man that cried out, son of David, have mercy on me. And he stops everything to respond to his need. Zacchaeus who runs on ahead and goes up a tree and he stops everything to call him down to go to his house for dinner. The woman with the issue of blood that pushes through the crowd and touches the edge of his garment as Jesus is on his way to perform another miracle but he stops everything for that one. When we're willing to stop for the one we begin to embody Jesus. Mercy stops for the pain of one. Now again we don't know the name of this man that has been wounded. There's nothing in the text to suggest that the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan did either. The Samaritan didn't know the injured journey, injured party, but he stopped anyway. You see, mercy values every individual. It wasn't a case of, I don't know you, so you're not my responsibility. How often do we do that? Since moving to Glasgow, I travel up and down the motorway six days a week. And inevitably, as I journey down the motorway, from time to time, there is a car broken down or there's an accident on the sideline and I slow down for a swatch. But as I do, I stop and I look to see, is it a car of someone that I know? Because in my mind, the answer is, if it is, I'll stop and help. But if it's not, it's not my responsibility. How important is it that we begin to value every individual? And I'm not suggesting that every time we see a car broken down in the motor, we pull over and help. That's not the point. The point is that mindset of, I look to see if it's someone I know, because if it is, it becomes my responsibility. And if it's not, it's not. Actually, mercy values every individual, regardless of who they are and where they've come from. And thank God that mercy has valued every individual gathered in this room. Every one of us are valued. So we've got to reflect that in an interaction with others. Now the text records something interesting here. It says the Samaritan came to where the man was. He came to the same spot in the journey as the other two. But unlike the priest and the Levite, we're told that the Samaritan experienced something that the other two did not. It says when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now the Greek word used here means to have your bowels yearn. My bills yearned last night after Susan made me a curry. But the point here is, he sees and he feels for the man. The only other place where the phrase bills yearn is used is in the parable of the prodigal son, where the passage describes the reaction of the father towards his wayward son. This reaction is presented in the prodigal son parable to describe the heart of the father God towards us. It's linked to the kindness and compassion of father. It's supposed to show us the kindness and compassion of the father towards each and every one of us. Therefore, the fact that this parable teaching us about mercy records the same reaction from the Samaritan towards the injured man as the father experienced towards the prodigal son teaches us that mercy feels as God feels towards the broken. To function in mercy is to see and to think and to feel not as we in the natural would see and think and feel they've made their bed so they can go and lie in it. But actually, is to see and think and feel as God does. And therefore, truly, it comes out of that place of functioning in the requirement of discipleship to act justly Love mercy and walk humbly with God because it's when we're walking humbly with God, it's when we're seeking to encounter him and behold him and to be transformed to become more and more like him that actually we find ourselves in situations feeling as he feels, seeing as he sees, responding with his response. Mercy feels as God feels towards the broken. This is further seen in the description He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Samaritan goes to the man at the point of need and he uses what he has to help. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The oil soothed and healed. The wine disinfected. This was an act of care. But the reason that these man, this man had these things wasn't that it was some kind of traveling first aid kit. He had these items because he needed them for his own journey. The oil was to protect his own skin from the heat of the day. The wine would have been for his own refreshment, to quench his thirst on a long, hot journey. That which was for his own comfort was what he used to comfort the ambushed man at his point of need. You see, mercy is selfless and unconditional. The Samaritan had nothing to gain from this response. But regardless, he gave from what he had to serve the need of another. And I'm sure there would have been moments on the Samaritan man's journey from that point onwards when he would have felt the need for the oil and the wine that he had given away in the service of others. I'm sure he would have felt the need for himself for that which he couldn't use because he's used it up to help someone else. That act of mercy cost him. We've got to be willing to invest what we have in the service of others with the expectation of nothing in return. And as we say that, we have to position that within the church. As a church, we have to be willing to invest in the service of other people with the expectation of nothing in return. Before starting here, I served as pastor in the church in Greenock for 20 years. Just shy of 10 of those years, we established and ran the food bank in Inverclyde that responded to an area that is now the area with the highest level of poverty in the whole of Scotland. At the point that we stepped away, we had provided food provisions for something like over 50,000 people across those years. And many times, pastors and colleagues would say to me, it's great what you've done, but how many bums and seats have you had as a result? How many people have come to faith as a result of your efforts as though it was only of value if there was a bum on a seat? And my answer was, who cares? Because mercy is selfless and unconditional. True mercy is. It doesn't serve with the condition of church attendance. It doesn't serve with the condition that people will now start to believe what we believe. It doesn't serve with the expectation of the person somehow giving back or with the desire for recognition or platitudes. Mercy gives freely. And thank God mercy gave freely to us because I know that I couldn't meet the conditions. I couldn't meet the conditions of response. But he gave it freely anyway. Let's be a people that invest in the service of others. Let's be a people that invests in serving our community and expects nothing in response. But we do it for no other reason than just to reflect Jesus Christ. The service of the Samaritan didn't stop with the wounds being bandaged and the oil being poured on, we're told. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan man took the injured man on a journey with him. He took him out of his place of ambush and pain to a place where it was safe for him to minister and care for the man. You see, mercy journeys with the broken. The Samaritan man ministered to him at his point of wounding, but then he journeyed with him to a place of healing and a place of care. And in this parable, we see two points of service, two points of ministry. We see ministry at the point of rescue, tending to the man's immediate needs, pouring oil and wine, bandaging up his wounds. But then we also see ministry at the point of recovery, tending to the man's long-term needs, putting him on the donkey and journeying with him to a place where he can experience restoration and recovery. You see, mercy commits to the journey. 
Mercy initiates response both in terms of rescue but also in terms of recovery. And as we begin in this journey going forward, as we begin to look at ways in which as a church we can embody mercy in the service of other people, we need to identify that which will respond to people's immediate needs and provide input at the point of rescue but we also need to begin to build into our structures and our programs that which will minister beyond that, that which will journey with others towards a place of recovery and bring them to a place of restoration. See, in our Pentecostal circles, we've come to believe in the instantaneous. We look for the suddenly moments of God. The moments when heaven breaks in and radical change and radical transformation is manifest and that's great and that's right. And in this church, we will always press in for those things, yeah? But while it's great and while we should press in for those things, we also have to be willing to journey with people. To help people find the instant rescue of God, but also to commit to journey alongside others in the long discipleship journey of restoration and recovery. We want to pray for people for healing there and then and now, but we also want to be willing to journey with them through their sickness. We want to pray for people to be delivered instantly, but we also commit to the long journey of freedom that sees the links in the chain break one at a time. We want to journey with people in their freedom and their deliverance. We want to journey with people in their grief and pray that instantly God will come and bring comfort, but that doesn't mean we won't journey through that long pathway of mourning and loss. We want to journey people to a place of faith and we want to pray that they would come to faith right there, right then in the moment, but we're also willing to say, if it's not now, then we'll journey with you in the process and we'll answer your questions and we'll help you explore God and we'll help you at the right time in the right moment put your faith and trust in him and then we'll continue helping you on the journey of discipleship. We've got to be willing to seek God for the quick fix moments but also commit to the long journey of restoration and repair. The Samaritan placed the man on his donkey and he took him to an inn. Notice how the Samaritan put himself out. Not only did he interrupt his journey in terms of stopping to help the man and in terms of taking him to an inn to begin to care for him and look after him, but he also put him on his own donkey, which meant he had to walk. His own journey became harder because he stopped to serve the need of another. Serving the needs of others is not without difficulty. And I can testify personally, it's not without pain. It's not an easy walk and it's not an easy journey. It can carry with it hardship, it can carry with it pain and without a doubt, investing in the service of others has an impact on our own comfort. And church, if we begin to engage in reaching out to our immediate community and serving the needs within it, we've got to understand it's going to disrupt the comfort within these four walls. When people with complex needs come through our door, when people that look different and think different and behave different to us, it's going to become a little bit uncomfortable. Investing in serving the needs of other people has an impact on our own comfort, but we reflect the heart of God who did not put his comfort above our own. We reflect the mercy of Jesus who out of kindness and tenderness towards us prayed, not my will, but your will be done. He took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. That was not comfortable for him. He didn't put his comfort over ours. He paid the price of our sin so that we could experience the rescue of grace and the recovery and restoring experience of salvation. I'd love to say today that serving others will be painful, but it will be worth it, but it probably won't. Because mercy is selfless and unconditional. It's not about serving our needs to therefore make it worth our own while. It's just about reflecting God to other people. That said, the next verse is so important for us. It says, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This verse presents a few things to us. 
First is similar to what we've just said. Mercy invests in other people's recovery. The Samaritan man opened up his own wallet and gave out of what he had to serve the need of someone else. He paid up front without the suggestion of a you owe me attached to that act. That injured man had been robbed. He had no funds to pay for the care that he needed. He had no money to pay for the recovery that he required. But the Samaritan man covered it for him. He literally invested in this man's recovery. Here, much like when he put him on his own donkey and carried him to the inn, we learn that mercy carries others when they can't carry themselves. Mercy inputs and invests in others what individuals are not capable of doing by themselves or in their own strength. Mercy means holding people up when they can't hold themselves up. Mercy means praying for other people when they can't and they don't know how and they can't even face God to begin to do it. Mercy means putting in the work on behalf of others when they're incapable of working the situation in their own strength. It carries other people when they can't carry themselves because how often have we been carried by God when we've been unable to take even one step? The point that is so important and it might sound contradictory to everything that we've just said is that mercy has boundaries. The Samaritan man intervened and provided rescue. He cared for and tended to that man's injuries. He journeyed them to a place of recovery. He invested in his care and then he left them in the care of somebody else. That's pretty powerful. Look again at what he says to the innkeeper. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The Samaritan man has journeyed this guy as far as he can and now he hands the next stage of his recovery over to somebody else. That's really important. Mercy has boundaries. Now it's not like limitations because it's limitless mercy, isn't it? But it is important that we learn to identify boundaries. Our job is to serve the need before us and it's to serve it with the best of our ability. But often serving it to the best of our ability means recognizing that there are limits as to what we can do. While mercy is selfless, while it at times can cost us, while it brings with it discomfort, it should never come at the cost of our own soul. So we have to recognize the moments when we draw a line and say, actually, this is as far as I can take you. This comes with the recognition that we can't be all things to all people. And that's hard. Because we want to help somebody, particularly those that we love, we want to help them and we want to be the source of help all the way through. But actually, we have to recognize that we know where our limits are. We have to know that we install in some boundary lines that at certain points we step away from other people knowing that actually up until this point, we've done everything that we can possibly do to serve and minister. And now the right thing for the person and the right thing for us is that we take a step back. It's not wrong to facilitate boundaries. It's not wrong to realize the need to pass the next stage of someone's journey onto another or onto someone more capable or more qualified than us. It's important that we recognize the call to serve the need that is in front of us and to realize that for this stage of the person's journey, we've done all that God has asked us to do. But actually now it's time to hand that over to the next person that God is putting in place. Because although the people may change, the experience of God's mercy is consistent through all. The God at work is consistent through all. And so as we say that, are there maybe boundary lines that you need to put in place in your life? Is there maybe a wee light bulb 
going on in your soul right now is it may be time to absolve yourself of the responsibility and the guilt that you have chained your soul to. Is it time to recognize that actually up until now you have done what God has asked of you and it's now time to hand the next stage of the journey over to whoever God brings next because God who sees the beginning from the end, actually he's in control of this, not you and not me. We need to realize we can't be all things to all people. We need to kill our own pride. We need to accept some humility and realize actually there's some boundary lines that come to my involvement and my ministry in a situation. And I have to let God be God and take the person over the next step. Mercy has boundaries. Jesus presents this parable in answer to a question. And look at how he rounds the whole thing off. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What I find amazing and only really just noticed is that Jesus actually reframes the question. He completely changes it. The question that was asked is, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable and then turns the question on its head back to the man and said, now who was the neighbor in this? He didn't say, the man is your neighbor. Instead, he turned it around and said, who was the neighbor to this man? The question moves from who is my neighbor to whose neighbor am I? He says, who showed mercy? Who acted like the neighbor in this situation? You should go and do the exact same. This parable is actually not about who our neighbors are. This parable is about the way that we should be neighbors to other people. It's about the way that we should live in and live out mercy. It's about the way that we should reflect the mercy of God to those around about us. And in the coming months, as we begin to look at building for the now, the next, and the not yet, we need to ask the question of Glasgow Elam, Whose neighbor are we? How can we serve our community? How can we send shockwaves of mercy through Govan Hill, through our city, through this region of Scotland? It's not who is my neighbor, there they are. I just see them. But it's about rolling up our sleeves and being willing to be mercy, be willing to live out mercy, be willing to live in mercy. It's about shifting the question from who is my neighbor to whose neighbor am I? Church, we have been blessed, so blessed to have experienced the mercy of God in our own lives. It's now time for us to rise up, to rise up and reflect that mercy to those that we come in contact with. It's time for us to own the roads that we're walking down, realizing that we are being sent down those roads as God's help We are his mercy in action in the environments and the circumstances that he positions us in. So let's take ownership of those environments. Let's not have a look, but let's roll up the sleeve. Let's identify, let's engage. Let's put all that we have in living mercy with no expectation of anything in return, but just because we know he delights in displays of mercy. Let's build that which brings him pleasure. Let's display the mercy of God. Let's stand together.